You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. If I were to listen to what the critics say about my job, I would get discouraged in a hurry. Some are sure our attempts to eavesdrop on alien signals is a quixotic quest. Others say we rely on belief more than science and that SETI is no more than a religion in a technical setting. Is searching for extraterrestrial intelligence legitimate science or an act of faith? I'm Seth Shostak. We'll hear a debate about SETI scientific credentials in the second half of the show. This is The Gospel According to SETI on Are We Alone? I'm Molly Bentley. Also in the show, It's All in the Mind, the crime-solving powers of psychic detectives, the discovery of a fossil that may be a missing link, and why swimming trunks may be the key to the Loch Ness mystery. You know, I'm all for trumpeting the show, but don't you think this goes too far? It's Skeptical Sunday. But don't take our word for it. First up, you know him as the bad astronomer, but Phil Plate also takes our... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. So, Phil, what have vacationing brains been up to recently? Well, the Earth's going to be destroyed again. You mean we're all going to die? Yeah, for like the hundredth time, I think it is. And this time, the culprit is a comet that is currently gracing our skies. It has the name, and get this, P73 schwassmann wachmann It was discovered about a hundred years ago, and a few years ago, it actually started to break apart into three or four chunks. And uh, it's passing pretty close to the Earth as these things go, but we have a pretty comfortable margin of error, about mm, 7 million miles between us and these chunks. So uh, who's saying that it's going to hit us, and when is it going to hit us? Well, no astronomers are saying this, of course. What's going on is that there's this guy whose name is Eric Julien. He is an ex-air traffic controller for the military in France, and he has written quite the missive about this comet, which is supposed to hit us on May 25th, according to him. Unfortunately, his sources are somewhat impeachable, I might say, in that he got his vision from a crop circle and UFOs. Uh, it's awfully kind of the aliens once more to, to advise us of impending catastrophe. May 25th, uh, that's not far off. Uh, Phil, I hope you've got your, uh, your, your affairs in order, as they say. Well, he says it's going to impact in the Atlantic, and I'm in California, so I'm okay, but I have relatives on the East Coast, so I'm, you know, oddly enough, not concerned about them. And, you know, it's, it's pretty funny. It, it, the guy has written this long article about it, and it's full of junk science. Basically, he says that a big chunk of this comet's going to explode. It's going to compress the water, which will compress the crust and cause seismic disturbances, which will cause a tsunami, and on and on and on. And uh, this is just impossible, basically. The, the amount of energy it would take to do this would be a comet 100 miles across. And there are no chunks of this thing which are, A, going to get anywhere near the Earth, and B, are big enough to do this anyway. Well, when you say not get anywhere near the Earth, you mean that they're just going to miss the Earth altogether, or are they just, you know, if they do get any closer, they're going to be burned up in the atmosphere? Well, it's going to miss the Earth altogether. The biggest chunks of this thing are going to miss by millions of miles. Now, the tail of the comet, the, the swept-back dust and pebbles, uh, we might pass through that. It's a possibility, although I don't think it's going to be too high of a chance. 
But if we do pass through that, then we will get a very pretty meteor shower and a light show, but nothing like what this guy is saying. You know, it's a little bit disturbing that an ex-air traffic controller is predicting a major crash. What, what other credentials does this fellow have to tell us something about cosmic catastrophe? Well, he's part of the Exopolitics Institute, which is a made-up institute of you know, he, he and a few of his friends put together about studying crop circles and UFOs. As a matter of fact, he's written an article with the very modest title of uh, The Greatest Discovery Ever, something like that, and it has to do with UFOs. This is all very silly. Uh, you know, if, if UFOs are communicating to us and telling us that a comet's going to impact us, I'm thinking, you know what? They have interstellar spaceships. Maybe they could push the comet out of the way. It doesn't sound like they want to help us all that much. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, that, that would cost them a little bit of money and so forth. But now, can a uh, chunk of a comet, assuming one's broken off and actually slammed into the Earth, could it cause a tsunami? Does that make any sense? Well, it could, but it would have to be huge. If you remember the movie Deep Impact from 1998, there was a chunk of a comet about a mile across that slams off the coast of, of North America. The tsunami that was raised by that was pretty big, and that was... You know, a movie, but it was based on reality. The thinking now is that the tsunami in that movie, which was hundreds and hundreds of feet high, probably exaggerated it. They may not get that big. But with a big enough chunk hitting in the ocean, yeah, you could get some pretty serious damage. This time, however, this case is not uh, that big of a deal. So this guy, Julian, is he getting a lot of play in the media with this story? Well, certainly on the web, uh, the web of a million lies, as I like to call it, he, he has his website, and he has a lot of other websites linking to him, and these are typical websites of chicken littles who like to run around screaming every time uh, an acorn hits him on the head, and that's sort of typical. But he's also going on the radio and, and talking about this sort of thing. And this really irritates me because there's one thing to have just bad astronomy out there, but this guy's scaring people and trying to panic them, and that to me is something that really has to stop. What's in it for him? Well, you know, I'm reading this, and I, I think he's actually honest. I think he's one of the few out there who actually really believes what he's saying. I don't think he's trying to make any necessarily any money off this. He really does try to help people. But in the meantime, he is scaring them with what's really just garbage science. You know, one thing that strikes me here, Phil, is that unlike so many of these predictions of doom and gloom, which are usually very indefinite, you know, in the next five years and something will happen, you know, he's, he's named a date, May 25th. I mean, you know, May 26th is going to come along. And uh, is anybody going to say, hey, you know, Eric, um, you were wrong? Well, I'll certainly be one of those people. You know, a few years ago, the Earth was going to be destroyed by a rogue planet, and the woman who was making these claims made the mistake of giving an exact date of when this would happen, and it didn't happen. And sure enough, her cult, and I, I will say it was a cult, disappeared almost literally overnight. We'll see what happens with this guy the next day. I predict he will say that uh, he was looking at that crop circle and a, a broken shaft of wheat had thrown him off, and he really meant May 25th of 2007, and we'll see what happens, or maybe the next pass of this comet in five years. Yeah, well, those crop circles are fairly ambiguous. To me, they just look like patterns. You know, they, they'd, be, they'd be great for your tie, perhaps. One last question, Phil. Are you going to be wearing an inner tube on May 25th? No, just a tinfoil hat. <laughs> Phil Plate, thanks very much, man. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate is an astronomer at Sonoma State University, and you can read more of his skeptical insights at www.badastronomy.com. Well, the judge may have ruled in the Dover trial, but that doesn't end the debate over intelligent design. Intelligent design is the notion that the world is so complex, it could only be the product of a supernatural designer. But two scientific discoveries recently have revealed more about the process by which one species changes into another and how complex systems form. In this installment of INID, Gordy Slack brings us the latest. He covered the Dover trial for Salon.com, and he's writing a book about ID. Well, Gordy, I think we'll start with some science. There was a discovery, a particular fossil discovery that interests evolutionary biologists. What was that? Researchers at the University of Chicago found an intermediate form between early fish and land-dwelling vertebrates. The fossil is about 350 million years old. So this is a missing link of sorts? It is a missing link. It fills the gap, which has long been speculated about and theorized about, between fish and their descendants who came up on land. In, in what way does it fill the gap? What was this creature like? Well, it had short, fin-like appendages that are kind of halfway between legs and, and fins with wrists, and it had a swiveling neck, and it looks a bit like a crocodile. 
<laughs> now, why does a land creature need wrists? I don't think of amphibians as having wrists exactly. You need a wrist on land in order to propel yourself well, whereas in, in the sea you just need a fin-like appendage to push water back. But if you're actually going to be moving around on irregular terrain, it helps a lot to have a wrist. So what was missing in the fossil record that this fossil filled? Well, there was a big gap between fish and land-dwelling creatures. And of course, the fossil record is filled with gaps. That's what the fossil record is, because fossils just come at punctuated points. So, But what's important about this gap is that it marks our own lineage, our own emergence from the water, so to speak. And it's a gap that intelligent designers and creationists have often pointed to as representing a lack of intermediate forms in the fossil record. So there really was nothing, we had nothing up to this point that showed the transition between fish and land animals? Well, there were things coming fairly close to either edge, but this is the clearest example of something that falls pretty much right in the middle. Won't there always be a gap in the fossil record? And then once you find a so-called missing link, it creates two gaps on either side of it then. Yeah, it's kind of the paradox of the missing links. The more bits of evidence you have, the more gaps there will be between those bits. So if you've got two fossils, you've got three gaps. And if you get 11 fossils, you've got 13 gaps. So evolutionary biologists presented this fossil found in, in the Canadian Arctic, I believe, That's actually. Right, about 600 miles from the North Pole. And they presented this as evidence of the link between the fish and the land-dwelling animals. And what is the response from the intelligent design community? Well, they say that it really doesn't prove anything. It's just another form. And, of course, there are innumerable forms that we haven't yet found that are still being discovered in, in the fossil evidence, but that you can't demonstrate bioforms' proximity to other forms, morphological proximity, or the, how much of their shape that they share in character traits, that they're actually related. So it's a problem that intelligent design will always be able to raise with evolution because of the nature of fossil evidence. Well, there was another piece of scientific evidence that came out recently that seemed to refute one of ID's central arguments about something called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is the idea that some biological forms are so complex and complex in such a way that if you removed any of their parts, they wouldn't work at all. They'd be of no value. The argument goes that they couldn't have evolved gradually because all of the parts need to be fully formed in order for the thing to work. And I think the mouse trap is used as an example here, isn't it? That's right. Michael Behe, who, who made popular this idea of irreducible complexity, often uses the idea of the mouse trap. And if you take any of the parts away from the mouse trap, it doesn't work as a mouse trap at all. So it couldn't have evolved, he says, because for it to evolve, all the parts have to be gradually sort of merging and evolving. What are the examples in the natural world that are like that, they say? Well, one that's often been pointed to uh, and is the oldest one probably in the literature is the human eye. And the argument is that half an eye doesn't do anything at all. And so you need all the parts of the eye for an eye to work or to be of any survival value. I think that's been shown to be untrue time and again by various evolutionary theorists. And so there was new work that came out along these lines about hormone receptors, I believe, that seemed to refute this idea of irreducible complexity. What was that? Well, there was a team from the University of Oregon who showed that hormone receptors, which are very complicated structures, may well have evolved quite slowly. I mean, there is no controversy within the scientific community about whether or not they evolved, but it's been very difficult to explain because of the level of their complexity and, and the nature of their complexity, how they might have become as finely tuned and complex as they are gradually. And what this study shows basically is a, is a way that that probably did happen. And hormone receptors are structures on the cells that allow the cell to communicate with other cells. That's correct. So what did they find? They found by looking at ancient examples of hormone receptors in other creatures that they actually evolved for one function, and that function was adopted by another part of the cell accomplishing an entirely new task. So in essence, they showed how the mousetrap of the hormone receptor was put together slowly and gradually through evolution.
So what you're saying is it shows that a complex system is not irreducible, that you can reduce it down to very simple parts, and then you can follow that evolution as those functions change. That's right. But as with the fossil problem, you can never show that all systems are reducible and explicable in terms of evolution and natural selection. You can only do it one system at a time. But this was a system that was so complicated and often pointed to by intelligent designers as one that would not be explainable this way. So it's an important step. Of course, there are a million other examples that intelligent designers can point to and say, well, you have no explanation for this one. And finally, if you look at the recent cover of Time Magazine down in the bottom corner, there are many faces on Time Magazine, but one of the faces is that of Judge Jones. That's right. Judge John Jones III oversaw the Dover trial, Kitz Miller versus the Dover Area School Board, late last year. And he wrote a stunning opinion that hit the intelligent design community very hard. So why was he on the cover of Time magazine? Well, it was a special issue of Time dedicated to the 100 most influential people in the world. And the editors of Time apparently expect that his decision is going to profoundly affect the way evolutionary biology is taught in the United States and our persistence in teaching it and not teaching intelligent design in biology classes. Because his decision was to say that intelligent design is not science. He ruled, one, that intelligent design is not science but is religiously motivated, and two, that teaching it in a public school biology class would be a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which protects the separation of church and state. Do you agree that he that he is one of the most influential people of this year because of that decision? I think it was a profoundly important decision. I don't think it's going to knock intelligent design out of the picture, and I think there are a number of aspects of it that he didn't address in the decision. And also, it's a highly adaptive and evolving creature, intelligent design. So it'll find a way to survive. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Gordy Slack is a journalist in California who is writing a book about intelligent design. While scientists have found what may be a missing link between creatures from the sea and amphibians, there's one creature that seems to have permanently gone missing, Nessie. That's the cuddly name for the famous monster, the Loch Ness, in Scotland. In the most famous photograph of this shy beast, taken in 1933 and known as the Surgeon's Photo, you can see what looks like the head and neck of a brontosaurus taking a bath in that lovely lake of Ness. Sixty years later, this enduring legend turns out to be a monstrous lie, a phony photograph taken for the Daily Mail. But the Loch Ness mystery continues, and Neil Clark, a paleontologist at Glasgow University, for one, believes there is something alive in Loch Ness. He joins me now to reveal what he believes is the identity of Nessie. Neil, perhaps you could describe the image of Nessie in the photographs and sightings over the years. What, what features do they have in common? Well, the, the one feature they have in common is that uh, the vast majority of them are very different. Uh, there's a whole variety of different kinds of sightings, but I suppose they could fall into maybe two or three different types. One is a long-necked creature with, uh, with either one or two humps. Uh, other ones are, are long snake-like creatures, and some are very fast-moving, very large creatures. Some sightings have been on land and some sightings have been in the water. So there's a whole variety of different kinds of Loch Ness monster-type sightings. When I think of the Loch Ness photos, I, I guess I'm thinking of that iconic one where you, you see what sort of looks to me like a brontosaurus in the water with a, you know, sort of a, a back hump sticking out and then, of course, the neck with the head. But that's, uh, that's not the only image we have of this uh, putative monster. No, we, we even have the monster on film, and see, even on film, it's open to, to interpretation. Uh, the early photograph you're speaking of was taken in 1934, I think it was, and, and that's been shown to be a hoax around about 60 years after the event. The, the person who took the photograph admitted that it was actually a hoax, and that's one of the problems with Loch Ness. It's been dogged with hoaxes throughout the years, and there's even more recent ones uh, that have come to light as well. But you believe that people actually have seen something. So what have, what have they seen, Neil? Well, the theory is that 
the Loch Ness Monster is actually an elephant. I mean, it does fit the classic profile of the long-necked animal, which would represent the trunk of the elephant, and two humps behind that, one, the first hump being the top of the head and, and the second one being the top of the back. So, I mean, it does fit in. The only problem with this theory is that uh, elephants aren't native to Scotland. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, elephants in the, in the locks of, of, of Scotland, I mean, <laughs> isn't, isn't that a major uh, challenge to your idea? I think that has been the problem in the past. A lot of people have recognized that the Loch Ness monster images, certainly the early ones and a lot of the early descriptions, do appear to represent an elephant, but they haven't been able to make the solid connection of the elephants in that area. Well, tell us how elephants might have gotten into the lake. In the 1930s, there was a road that was built along the north side of Loch Ness, all the way from Fort William to Inverness. And, and this road allowed the transport of circus animals from the south to the north uh, along the, the banks of Loch Ness. And these animals, because of such a long journey on a circus caravan, they would allow the animals to refresh themselves on the way to Inverness. And this would take place in, in Loch Ness itself. So you would see elephants and camels swimming about in the loch. Uh, and this is what gave rise to a lot of the earlier and most numerous uh, sightings of, of the Loch Ness Monster. So your, your idea here is that uh, the circus animals taking a, taking a break on, on route between uh, the east and west uh, parts of Scotland were frolicking in the lake. Some people saw them and assumed that they were something uh, unnatural. Can, can you verify this by corroborating dates and, and transport of animals? Yes, I mean, we've got circuses going up to Inverness, going back to at least the 1880s and 1870s, and there have been documentary evidence of the, the circus people allowing the animals to go swimming in the loch. So it's really just putting that together with the, the sightings uh, that made it all seem quite logical, really. Frolicking pachyderms. What about the more recent sightings? Presumably they're not elephants. Uh, people continue to see the Loch Ness Monster. Yes, they do, and a lot of the later sightings have been hoaxes, taking advantage, obviously, of the belief that there is a monster in the loch. Some people have been dumping dead animals at the side of the loch. They've been even planting plesiosaur fossil bones at the side of the loch. And the Munchak Deerhorn was uh, identified from something that somebody suggested might be the tooth of the Loch Ness Monster. So e even today, there are a number of phenomena that have been attributed to, to the Loch Ness Monster that can be interpreted in, in a more logical and rational way. Neil Clark, thank you very much for being with us and talking to us about uh, this new idea regarding the Loch Ness Monster, and it's kind of gratifying to know that the monsters were at least wearing their trunks. Thanks for being with us, Neil. You're welcome. Neil Clark is curator of paleontology at Glasgow University's Hunterian Museum. From Scotland, we now go to Tinseltown. It's a Hollywood reality check. Hooray for Hollywood. That's Brewy Valley, hooey Hollywood. We're in New York. All right, everybody, this is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table. It's not certain that our Hollywood skeptic always stays on the right side of the law, but when it comes to solving crimes, he is on the side of the men and women in blue over those who would wield a crystal ball. Now and then, we read in the newspaper about a bizarre missing person case. The police can find no witnesses, and the case is getting colder every day. The family of the missing person is frustrated, and they don't know where to turn. Then out of the blue comes someone who says she has a valuable tip for police. Enter the psychic detective. A psychic detective is someone who claims she'll help solve a mystery by getting information from some supernatural source. Desperate families sometimes call psychic detectives. Sometimes psychic detectives volunteer their services, but the police almost never call the psychics. But psychics have now meddled in enough cases that psychic detectives currently star in two reality-based TV shows. One is the sci-fi channel's Psychic at Large. The other is Psychic Detectives on Court TV. Both shows feature alleged psychics traipsing around the country supposedly solving crimes. These reality shows clearly portray psychics helping police, but they may not be giving the cops the facts they really need. Remember, the police are obligated to record anything anyone contributes to a case, even psychic detectives. 
So when some so-called psychic shows up and says the victim died in a wooded area, the cops are listening. A convincing psychic may even influence a search party where to look. The psychic supernatural source usually gives clues in the form of hints, like initials. The kidnapper's name starts with an M or a J. The problem with this kind of vague hint is that it still allows for thousands of possible suspects. It doesn't narrow the search. Or they'll describe a crime scene by saying, the body is underwater. That may sound like a usable clue, but hold on. Underwater? There's water everywhere. The planet is 70% water, pal. Can you be a little more specific? The cops need an address, not a territory. They need a suspect's name, not an initial. Look, the tips psychic detectives give are vague and useless. In fact, there is not a single case in history where a psychic provided the key information that solved the case. Not one. And the fact that psychic detectives usually don't get paid for their services convinces some people that they do it out of the kindness of their hearts. But there are ulterior motives. Nosing around law enforcement does help fatten the psychic's pocketbook, even if they don't charge the victim's families or police. By saying they work with police departments, two-bit storefront psychics can gain enough credibility to get on Larry King and other shows where journalism takes a backseat to entertainment. They raise their quote, and these altruistic detectives can now charge grieving relatives hundreds of dollars for personal readings. Hey, if psychics really could solve mysteries, we'd know where Jimmy Hoffa and Amelia Earhart are. We'd know who killed John Benet Ramsey, and we'd solve hundreds of other crimes. The day psychic detectives show up with some real skills is the day I stop locking my doors here in Hollywood because crime would no longer be a concern. But until then, let the police detectives solve crime and send the psychic detectives back to the storefronts on Hollywood Boulevard. Jim Underdown is the executive director of the Center for Inquiry West in Hollywood. Critics dismiss the search for E.T. as a religious quest. Coming up, we'll talk to a prominent SETI researcher about the science behind the search. It's the gospel according to SETI on Skeptical Sunday. Seth Shostak, welcome back to Are We Alone on a Skeptical Sunday. A little earlier in the show, we were talking with Phil Plate about this comet that seems to have broken up, bits and pieces of which are claimed to be on a collision course with Earth to produce a tsunami that will merely wipe out the East Coast. Well, I talked to Peter Yeniskins here at the SETI Institute, who's an expert on comets, about this night sky object, something it turns out you can see quite easily. Peter, there's a comet up in the sky this week. Yes, and it's a very special comet, a comet that you shouldn't miss if you have a binoculars or a small telescope. What, what's the name of this thing? Uh, the comet is called schwachmann wachmann Tsui. That's a little hard to pronounce. Is it's there a... hard to pronounce. <laughs> it's uh, a long name. Uh, it uh, can easily be found on Google if you go and look for 73P. 73P. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, people think of comets in the sky, big bright objects, long tails. What, what can people see? What, do they have to go to, you know, do they have to have a 100-inch telescope in their backyard? No, no. Uh, this is actually a, a, a naked eye object, a barely naked eye object. A comet is just bright enough to make a beautiful object in a binocular. So if you have a pair of binoculars at home, uh, go outside and try to find this uh, fuzzy blob among the stars. Where should they look? Uh, the object uh, is moving to Lyra, uh, Cygnus, and at the moment it is in uh, the tail and the head of uh, of the Pegasus, the horse. So, uh, it, but you can't see it with your eye. You have to have the binoculars. You sort of scan around in the constellation of Pegasus. Yes. What makes this comet uh, special is that it's not that big and bright a comet as, uh, as Hale-Bob was when uh, it was seen. Uh, it's actually a fairly small comet. It's not bigger than about a mile in, in diameter. Uh, but uh, what's special is that it fell apart. It broke in pieces. And those pieces have been uh, observed to continue to break apart into many more pieces. At the moment, there's over 100 little comets out there only two of which are bright enough to see uh, with the binoculars well. And so uh, you want to look for those two comets, or those two comets on the sky. Uh, this uh, particular event is very rare because it's only visible because the comet passes the Earth very closely. It's uh, passing by the Earth only about 30 times the distance to the moon. 
What's the future of this comet, Peter? What's what's going to happen to it? Is it just going all these little pieces just going to go back to the outer solar system and maybe someday come back? What? We hope, but we truly hope that the future of this comet is going to be a spectacular meteor shower on our planet. Uh, this comet is passing so close to the Earth's orbit that the meteoroids can actually hit the Earth's atmosphere when the Earth is in the path of the comet in the future. Now, it won't happen this year around because all the dust passes just outside of Earth's orbit. But the dust evolves under planetary perturbations, and in a couple of years, uh, that dust can come close enough to the Earth for us to cross it. When it does, uh, we can see a beautiful meteor shower. Meteor showers in our future. Peter Yaniskins, thanks very much for being with us. My day job is working as an astronomer for the SETI Institute. We figure there's a lot of life out there, and some of it must be intelligent. So we set up big radio antennas, and we listen. We have a lot of support for this work, and our share of critics, to be quite honest. Recently, a book came out by historian of technology George Basala called Civilized Life in the Universe. This book takes an unusually critical look at the scientific search for aliens. Now, many reviewers who have written about this book seem to sympathize with the author's point of view. One, writing for the journal Science, laid out the argument that SETI is not a scientific search, but a quasi-religious quest, and that any sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God. In the San Francisco Chronicle, a book critic echoes this and adds that one of SETI's motivations for talking to aliens is that we might learn something from them, such as a cure for cancer. He also wrote that SETI is a fledgling science that long ago ceased to be scientific, unquote. Then I received a letter from a listener in Florida who wrote, SETI is not science. Science must follow the scientific method, which follows from observation to hypothesis to experiment to results and back again. SETI, however, does not proceed from observation. It is based on a belief, an idea, that there is something out there. He goes on to say, please understand that I mean no disrespect to you or the project. It just seems to me that the scientific merits of SETI are little more than those of intelligent design and that the merits of things like Bigfoot and UFOs are far greater. Well, obviously criticism of SETI is nothing new, but what marks the comments surrounding the George Pasala book is their failure to understand the basic premise of SETI and the logic behind the search. We asked George Pasala to be on the show but he declined. Nonetheless, we feel it's important to address his and these others' central criticisms. Is it the gospel according to SETI? Is SETI a religious quest? And what is its basis in science? Well, joining me in the studio is Jill Tarter, director for SETI Research here at the SETI Institute and also holder of the Barney Oliver Chair for SETI Research, as well as on the phone, David Darling in Dundee, Scotland. David Darling is an astronomer and a writer of books about astronomy and SETI. I began by asking Jill Tarter if the fact that some people have said that SETI is a religion is because we have blind faith that someone is out there. Uh, well, I would contend that it is at all, and I wish that Mr. Vasala had asked me why I do SETI rather than uh, claiming that I do it because of religious passion and uh, looking for extraterrestrial salvation. As far as I'm concerned, SETI is an exploratory science, and we're simply trying to answer a question. If we knew what the answer was and we're telling you what it was, then it would be religion. But there's no doubt that people who do SETI research have a personal belief about the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. I mean, if somebody asks you, do you think they're out there, you probably don't say, I have no opinion on that. Oh, actually, what I say is I wouldn't work on a problem that I didn't think had a potential for a solution. So that I, I do, in fact, think that what we know a little bit about uh, the uh, environments in which life can exist on this planet, something a very little about how it originated, makes it plausible that the same processes could have operated elsewhere. But I certainly wouldn't say I know anything about it, and what I believe or don't believe doesn't matter a hill of beans. Question is, what's the evidence and what's the correct answer? David Darling, SETI a religion? Well, no. Uh, for me, you know, there's two defining features of religion. First of all, some devotional aspect. You know, worship is involved. Now, unless there's something I don't know about how SETI workers conduct their affairs, I don't think that really comes into SETI at all. The other is faith, and I suppose that's where people might say perhaps there's a parallel. But 
in religious faith, there's a conviction in the absence of any material evidence. That doesn't really apply to SETI. You might, you might draw a sort of broad parallel, but, you know, the fact is we know there is intelligence in the universe. Dolphins here on Earth, there's great apes, and, you know, rumor has it that even humans are intelligent when we're not I'd watch that. To, to pieces. <laughs> so, we, we, you know, we know there's intelligence here, and it, it's, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis, given the size of the universe, the number of stars, that it exists somewhere else. So it's, it's really a false comparison. Uh, you mentioned dolphins, there's other intelligence on this planet, but that's one of the arguments, I think, of Basala's book, uh, and that is that we that SETI is very anthropocentric. In other words, we hypothesize too much that they are like us, whereas, you know, our SETI experiments wouldn't detect dolphins on this planet. What about that? Well, actually, what we are stuck with is uh, looking for technology that's like ours, or at least technology that we currently understand. If we could only understand what zeta rays were, I mean, we're really stuck in 20th century, 21st century technology, and we are stuck in our human skins. That's the, you, can't, you can't get out of that. Um, but rather than saying they're just like us, we are in fact restricted to saying that the technology that we're looking for is that which we already understand. And if it's... Um, big blue giraffes that are running the transmitters, fine with me, or something that I haven't, I can't even define. Um, I think that's true. I mean, you can only look for what you know. Uh, and as our technology grows, no doubt we'll think of other ways that they might be trying to get in touch with us so we can broaden the search. But you have to start with what you know. It's, it's, it's only reasonable. What about uh, the counter-argument that uh, somebody like Mr. Basala might make, which is to say that, well, anthropomorphic in the sense that uh, we assume they'll be using technology that's similar to ours, a technology that we ourselves have only had for, you know, a century or, or less. Why, why do we think that we would overlap their technological capabilities? Well, it's often uh, possible that uh, it's the instant for ancient instruments uh, where the uh, technologists doing the transmitting um, are, are located. I think if you are deliberately transmitting, that's one assumption. If you're doing so to attract the attention of the emergent technologies in the galaxy, that's us folks. We're the dumbest folks on the block that can, can try and play this game. Um, then you would use a technology that is, at least by your definition, primitive, simple, easy, something that uh, produces artifacts that an emerging technology, which begins to open its eyes and its senses to explore its universe, could stumble across. I get uh, emails all the time. You presumably do as well, Jill, uh, that say, you know, you guys really are barking up the wrong technological tree, that uh, radio waves only go at the speed of light and this, that, and the other. They have all these limitations. And after all, if we were doing SETI 100 years ago, we would probably be flashing beacons at Mars or something like that. You know, our ideas about how to do this change uh, quite quite quickly. Do you have confidence that uh, electromagnetic waves, that is to say, Light radio is, is that have a is that going to have a long run? Are, are you just simply taking the pragmatic point of view? We don't know whether it'll have a long run, but it's the best thing we know today. That's right. Uh, I'm the biggest pragmatist in the world. Uh, we do what we can. The alternative is to do nothing. Seth, you yourself have a have a nice expression which says Columbus didn't wait for a 747 to get himself across the Atlantic. Um, you do what you can. It may be laughable in the future. Uh, in the sense that there might be something um, absolutely obvious to someone with a different knowledge set. But uh, we don't have that now, and we might as well try. I mean, we're not really spending a whole lot of effort and resources on this. It's a small effort in terms of what the uh, world can do in the 21st century, and yet it could have such an enormous payoff. I think it's exactly the same in astrobiology. I mean, the sort of life that we are looking for at the moment is this carbon-based life. It's similar to the life that we know around us here because it's the type of life that we know how to look for and to detect. So it's, it's, it's an obvious approach to take, to start with what you know, and in the case of SETI, to use the technology that you have. 
and then broaden out from there. It, it, it's just the most reasonable approach. And at least you eliminate those possibilities to begin with. And, you know, if there are other possibilities out there, uh, technologies that we can't conceive of at the moment, well, what we ought to be doing is what we ought to be doing for other reasons as well, which is exploring our universe with every conceivable tool that we can invent, trying to understand the environment that we, at least, exist in. And if we stumble across some anomalies, like that little bit of scruff that Jocelyn Bell found when Mm -hmm. pulsars were discovered, we ought to think about, gee, maybe this anomaly is really an indication of someone else's astro-engineering capabilities. Who knows what? Who knows why? But in fact, there might be a manifestation that we could find, and all we would know that it's not astrophysics as, as we currently understand it, and we could go looking further. One of the well, that that suggests an analogy with maybe Captain Cook in the late 18th century, sailing um, uh, around the Pacific, looking for new islands, mapping existing islands, and so forth. And it was somewhat serendipitous. He was there on a voyage of exploration. Perhaps said he should be called exploration. I mean, does it bother you that, for example, some people would say, you know, it can't be science because it's not falsifiable. It isn't that you've set up this hypothesis. There are intelligent beings out there, and we can do an experiment and prove that maybe they're not. Yeah, I, I think there there's a parallel with uh, extrasolar planets because, you know, until quite recently, we didn't know that there were planets around other stars. It was the assumption, because there are planets around the sun, that maybe there would be planets out there. But we didn't know that. Uh, the search began, I believe, back in the 1930s with Peter van de Kamp. And it was only in 1995, was it, 60-odd years later, that we found the first planets. Now, you know, that was, an, that was a, a, not a falsifiable uh, approach, if you like. We could have been searching for centuries and centuries and not, and not found anything. As it happened, we did. Now, there are some people who are saying, oh, we should pull the plug on SETI because we've not found anything after 40-odd years. We did the same thing with extrasolar planets. We would have missed the boat. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's a crazy argument. Uh, Jill, you have been doing this not for 45 years, but you've been doing it a long time. Uh, how do you answer the comments of people who at a cocktail party would say, well, you've been looking for decades. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they're not there. Oh, I usually ask the people how old they are. But how much of that time have you actually been eating? What fraction of your effort has been spent putting food in your mouth. Uh, This concept that we've been doing SETI for 40 years has implicit in it that we're doing SETI all the time, every way that we can. In fact, our efforts to, to get access to the sky are paltry. And the amount of physical um, or signal space, if you wish, the amount of um, the volume of possibilities with respect to what an electromagnetic signal might be like and the instrumentation needed to detect it um, that we've been able to explore so far is is trivial is too sm- it's it's a There's no word that's small enough to indicate the uh, fraction of the possible searches that could be done that we have done. And and the the good thing, of course, is that the very technology that we're um, employing is is getting better faster all the time. We're, We're in an exponential growth, and that means that the searches that I do today put to shame anything that I was able to do when I first started. Is is there any timescale, Jill, over which you'd reconsider doing this? I mean, well, I don't think there's any timescale that I personally would set. I think what's going to happen is that civilizations, or if you wish, our paymasters, are going to set that scale. At some time in the future, um, our descendants are going to take a look at what's been done, and they're going to say, oh, you know, we've really reached a threshold of pain here. We've looked in enough ways with sufficient sensitivity to have found analogs of 20th, 21st century Earth. We haven't found anything. For all practical purposes, we probably should conclude that we are alone. But that is in the future, and that is for someone else to make a judgment, um, having decided that the amount of effort that's been put in is really commensurate with the importance of the question. 
David, uh, you're in the UK, and mm-hmm. and the British press in the past week or so has had a couple of stories suggesting that people are getting discouraged about SETI's prospects. I'm not quite sure what's motivating these stories. There doesn't seem to me to be anything that that should motivate it. Although there's a, a meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society this week, and I know that SETI is on the agenda. But uh, how do you see that? I mean, after all. In the past 10 years, as you've already pointed out, we found planets around other stars. Mm -hmm. We have suspicions about other worlds in our own solar system that might be habitable, if not inhabited. Uh, It it seems that all the signs are pointing in one direction, and that one direction is the right one for SETI. Why why suddenly this pessimism? Well, I don't know. I I don't think there's any particular reason for it. I mean, maybe some of the spotlight has been taken off SETI by astrobiology. There's there's so many developments uh, locally in astrobiology maybe that's the the new flavor of the month i don't know but i i see an opportunity there for a sort of a a convergence of astrobiology and seti i mean uh, jill's been involved in uh, in this uh, cataloging um, likely habitable planets and it seems to me that this provides the opportunity for more targeted searches in the future so that as we start to identify earth-like planets and and hopefully eventually develop the technology where we can identify possibly signs of, of life on these worlds, we can then focus the SETI searches to see if there's possibly signs of more advanced life. So it seems to me that the the promise of SETI is growing all the time. And if there's a public perception that, well, we've spent so many years looking, we should give up, I think it's a, I think it's a very um, premature conclusion to, to make. I think the, the prospects for SETI are growing rosier all the time as technology improves and and as our ability to identify Earth-like planets grows, I think the opportunities for SETI are growing too. Yeah, actually, Seth, long ago, um, decades ago now, Don Goldsmith, who is a, an astronomer, a popularizer of science, and actually also a lawyer, um, wrote an article that I found very interesting, and he looked at the uh, just the nature of uh, humans' uh, attention span, if you wish. And he actually predicted that SETI would go through cycles and there would be a lot of enthusiasm for a while, time scale of order decades from from other examples. And then, absent any results, there'd be a whole backlash against SETI with exactly the same sort of argument you were just saying. Well, you've looked for so long and haven't found anything, then there must not be anything to find. And and I think it's... uh, it's amusing to sit back and look at, in fact, what may be um, that prediction playing out as as true. It's just the pendulum of public opinion, David. But I think the problem, one of the problems that he has, is that it's an all-or-nothing affair. You know, you don't detect, you don't detect. There's no there's no progress to show except to say that well, our technology is improving. We're searching more stars. We're doing this and that faster and faster. Uh, but, you know, until you actually make contact or, or pick up that signal, it seems as though you've actually achieved nothing. But then, of course, the event itself would be transformative. So uh, it, it has that unfortunate aspect to it. It's a bit like Chris Columbus on the Atlantic in the mm-hmm. early part of his voyage. Uh, mm-hmm. Just seen water. Uh, one uh, argument that is made by those who think that SETI is a religion is that we seem to promise salvation. That is, some people have said, and I think Carl Sagan was at least cited as one of those who did, that if we were to pick up a signal, of course, presumably that signal is coming from a, a society far beyond our own. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't hear them. And consequently, we are going to garner from this the cure for cancer or whatever. How do you feel about that, Joe? Well, the first part of the statement is statistically quite likely to be correct. The second part is interpretation that I won't um, go along with. Phil Morrison has a beautiful way, or had, unfortunately. We've lost Phil. Phil Morrison had a beautiful way of phrasing this and our asymmetry with respect to the universe. He talked about SETI being the archaeology of the future, Now, it's archaeology because an electromagnetic signal travels only at the speed of light, and so what we learn about, um, if anything other than just uh, proof of existence, um, is their past. So that's the archaeology part. But in order for SETI to succeed, then the signals have to be co-located not only in space, close by, 
so that our sensitivity will pick them up, but in time so that they have to exist, coexist at the same time during this very long history of the Milky Way galaxy, something like 10 billion years. That means that the technology that's transmitting has to have a longevity that's significantly greater than the kinds of human lifetime scales that we measure things. And um, if that technology can, in fact, survive for a long time, exist for a long time, uh, and if that's the rule out there, then it's possible for us to contemplate a technological future uh, in in long terms for ourselves. And so it's not saying that you'll get you know, the manual for, for here's how you take all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or here's how to cure cancer or whatever your problems are. But it is, in fact, a proof. A detection of a signal could serve as a proof that it is possible for us to have a long technological future. I think that would be a very momentous uh, discovery. It, it's a bit like adults are a good example for kids that they can live for a long time. David, what do you see as the, you, you talked about a SETI detection as being transformative. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that. What would a SETI detection mean as far as you're concerned? I, I just think the very fact of realizing that we're not alone in the sense of being, you know, quote unquote, high form of intelligence would be transformative itself. I don't think, for example, finding bugs on Mars, it would be exciting news for sure, but it it wouldn't change people's lives or our philosophy. And I might say that also even our religions, I think our religions would have to adapt that uh, discovery as well. So it's not so much is SETI a religion, but what SETI might do to religions if it is successful in in finding uh, uh, companion intelligence out there, but I just think the actual you know realization that there is, there's intelligence and, and as we probably agree more advanced than us would just settle into our psyche and would change us as a species. And finally, Jill, what do you think the reaction would be if we were to find that signal? Well, I know what mine's going to be. It's going to be finally to drink that champagne that's been on ice for so long. Um, would you go to work the next day? Would kids go to school? Would the stock market crash? We've we've discussed these kinds of questions with social scientists, and basically the answer you get back is that should this event take place, the world will react and individuals in the world will react in terms of whatever personal belief systems they hold at the time. And since polls, at least in this country, say most of the people, more than half of the people in this country believe there's extraterrestrial intelligence, it doesn't seem to me like it would be such alarming news. On the other hand, I I agree with David that over time, this would be like the Copernican uh, revolution, like uh, Darwin's um, evolution treatise. It would change how we view ourselves and put us into a universal context that we currently lack. Jill Tarter, thank you very much for being with us. You're very welcome, Seth. David Darling, glad you could be with us to talk with us today. Pleasure, thank you. It may not surprise you, especially now that we've said this at the end of every show, but we do encourage you to tune in to Are We Alone? every week here on Discovery Radio. And once a month, we devote a show to critical thinking, Skeptical Sunday, but don't take our word for it. If you want to know more about upcoming shows, scout out past shows, or just fill up your iPod with the jokes of Seth Shostak, visit the SETI Institute's website at www.seti.org. Thanks to Barbara Vance and Juhi Yajnik for their help with the production of the show. This is Seth Shostak for the SETI Institute, where we always listen, but sometimes we broadcast. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. 
Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.